Good morning. We'll be looking at John's first, second, and third letters. So go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1. But uh, before we get into that, let me give you some background so that you can have a perspective on why John is writing this letter, his first one. He was writing it in response to a heresy, a false teaching that was in the church. Now, there were two major categories of heresies in the early church. The first one was a return to law-keeping, which we've already seen talked about. This was a, a teaching that Jesus didn't do everything to save you. You also have to keep the law and do good works to be saved. And that was addressed, as we saw, in Galatians and Romans and Hebrews. This other heresy has to do with adding philosophy and man's teachings in particular, we're looking at Gnosticism. And that was addressed in Colossians, and it's also addressed here in 1 John. Now, Gnosticism is, means knowledgeism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, to know. And these people who taught this believed that Christ was not enough. They believed that you had to understand this secret, this greater knowledge that only they had. One of their major teachings was that matter that is, the world, the things here, is sinful. It's polluted. And God is too pure to contact it. So God did not come as a man. Instead, Jesus was a man, and the Christ was some something divine that came on him at his baptism and left before his death. So they did not believe that Jesus was God. Now, for those believers, imagine this. Put, try to put yourself in their shoes. These believers who heard these Gnostic teachers... It would be very intimidating. These men really understand the teaching that they're talking about, this whole set of teaching. They, they know it very well, and I have no idea what they're talking about. They're way over my head. They're on a separate plane, so it would seem. And they're saying that unless I learn this from them, all of this additional knowledge, I can never hope to be in heaven. Well, that's something that would bother you. That's something that would keep you awake at night. They're talking about the very foundation of what you believe and saying that it's wrong. So John writes this letter. And his response, he could have taken on the beliefs of Gnosticism and point by point gone through, described what they believe and why it's wrong, one after the other. But that's not what he does. Instead, he shows that they are entirely missing what Christianity is all about. They thought that it was all about knowledge. John shows that it's about knowing Jesus. In fact, he uses their word, no, or some form of it, 37 times in this book. But he's using it in two entirely different senses. The fir first of all, what the Gnostics meant by knowledge was facts, head knowledge. What John is speaking of first is knowing Jesus, the relationship that we have with him. And second, knowing that I know him, the assurance that we have. Think about what it means to know Jesus. We're not just talking about knowing an ordinary person. We're talking about knowing Jesus, knowing God himself. This is the one who, we, who loves you and me so deeply, who we just sang about that was crucified for you and for me, who went through that horrible death for us. This is the one that we know, that we have a relationship with. Believers know Jesus. They know God in the same way that I know Noad 
or that I know John. That's the relationship that we have with God. And that's what eternal life is all about. In the end of John's Gospel, chapter 17, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So let me give you a few verses here, just to bring the sense of this alive, that describe what knowing Jesus is. Paul describes his... Paul describes what's important in his life. He has just talked about, you don't have to turn there, Philippians chapter 3. He's just described what his life was like before knowing Jesus. And then he describes what it's like now, after knowing. But what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. That's what's important to Paul, the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And then in 2 Timothy, as his death was approaching, he talked about the confidence that he had because he knows Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Paul is sure of his relationship with God, and that's everything to him. And then the writer of Hebrews describes what it will be like during the millennium, when everyone will know the Lord. It's wonderful. He's quoting from Jeremiah. He says, None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. What a beautiful situation, huh? So that's what it means to know Jesus. But then, as I said, second, John is also talking about the assurance to know that we know him. And that's what these believers have lost. They're frightened. They're concerned. They think that they may not know, that they think that they may not be going to heaven anymore. And it's really bothering them. So John wants to show them that they can know that they know him, that there's no reason to be afraid at all. So how does John begin? Chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 John. He describes his relationship with Jesus. Let's read it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John was with Jesus. He was with God on this earth for three years. He walked the roads with him. He saw everything that he did, which was what God did. God on this earth. And he came to know Jesus. He came to know God in an incredible way. And we know Jesus too. Obviously not in the same way that John could, but when we're saved, we see the love that he has for us. and We see how he works in our lives, and we know Jesus too. And John wants the believers to see that it's knowing Jesus that matters. And not only that, but it will have a real effect on a person's life. So then... What's God like? Verse 5. This is the message which we, have heard, which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. He's perfect. He's completely separate from sin. More, morally perfect. He could not possibly be better in any way. And if we know God, we see his love for us, we'll love him in return and we will want to please him as he says at the beginning of verse 7. We walk in the light as he is in the light. Our lives will be marked by righteousness. It will be what we practice. It will be the characteristic of our lives. 
But then verse 8, we will sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We will sin. We're still sinners, even though we want to live close to him. But praise God, when we do, when we confess it, he's already taken care of it. All the sin has already been paid for. And he forgives us and the sin is gone. It's part of the past. It's good that John has these couple verses in here, verses 8 and 9, because when he's describing believers here, as we've seen, and he'll describe them several times later on, you could take it to mean that believers have to be sinless. But obviously that's not what he's saying. But these things, these descriptions of believers, the righteousness here, and we'll see several things later on, these will be the practice of a believer's life. They demonstrate the relationship that's there. If these are not the practice of a believer's life, it is a clear indication that the person does not know God, no relationship. As in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is the assurance John was talking about. Because we keep his commandments, we see that, we know that we know him. We can see the relationship. I'll want to follow him. But if it's not part of my life, then I'm not keeping his commandments. It's it's all part of a lie. It's all false. And then in verses 9 and 10, John gives another mark of one who knows God. And it's love for other believers. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. It's a natural result. If I love God, I will love those who love him. There's a real strong bond there. When you meet someone who, who has love for the Lord in the same way that you love the Lord, there's a, there's a tie there, a real relationship, and, there, and there's love. And Jesus said that it would be that way. In John chapter 13, he said, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then verses 15 and 16, he gives a third description of a person who knows God and loves him. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, why do people in the world care about these things? There is an appeal there. For example, the pride of life that John talks about, having people look up to you and say that you're great, you're really special, you're the one that everyone likes. It's, it's something that people would want to have, but it's because they don't have any conception of anything better. This is the best they can see, these things right here. But for those who know God, these things cannot even begin to compare with the love that we have for God, the relationship that we have with him, There's no room for these things anymore. And so John has shown three differences here between those who know God and those who don't. What he's trying to do, he's trying to encourage the believers. He wants to show them that they're truly saved. He wants to show them the distinction between those who know God, which is the believers who John is writing to, and the Gnostics, who were completely false. So let's take a look here. This is a flower. 
You agree, right? You can tell. You take a look at it. Look at the stalk here. I can see the cells. I can see inside it. Yeah, I can see this is the real thing. I look at the flower. I can see the intricate workings inside here. If I were to dissect this thing and take it apart, the more I look at it, the more I realize this is the real thing. This is a flower. But this is not. As much as it may look like a flower, particularly to some of you in the back row there, it tries to match its looks. It tries to appear the same. But again, I perform a simple uh, examination. I look in the right places. I look at the stalk here. It's wire with plastic around it. I look at the leaves here. I look at the petals. It's fabric. This is not the real thing. Okay? And that's what John is showing the believers. They can see from their lives. They look in the right places. They are the truth. They are true believers. They know God. The Gnostics, a bunch of fakes. It's all false. And, then now, and now they can see. And now, at the, towards the end of chapter 2, John also wants to show the believers that they are complete without Gnosticism. They don't need any of it. So the end of verse 20, you know all things. There's the irony there. This is what the Gnostics were teaching. This is what they were saying to the believers, that they knew all things, and that the believers had to learn from them all of, this, all of these secret things. John's saying, no, you know all things, not just the basic knowledge, maybe, not just the bare bones. No, you, have, you know all things. You don't need anything else apart from what you have. And then what happens? Verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. They only need what they've always had. They trust God for the salvation of their souls. They know that he's paid the penalty for their sins. They believe that, and then they abide in they abide in Christ, in the Son and in the Father. They live in Him. That's all they'll ever need. Now, chapter three, John again gets into the differences between those who know God and those who don't. Let's read verses two and three. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. John pauses. He takes a moment here to examine our relationship with God. We are born of him. We are children of God. Who are we that we should be in that close of a relationship? We, are, we have nothing to him but the creator to the creation. And yet God has brought us into his family. We could not be closer. And we can look forward with certainty to a time when we will be with him forever. What an incentive to follow him, to live righteously as he is. As John says in verse 3, and it will be the, it will be the practice of our lives. It will be something that people can see. But then by contrast, look at the unbeliever, verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Unbelievers have no connection with God, no relationship. And so, likewise, there's no desire, no desire to keep from sin, no desire to follow him. 
And then verses 11 and 12, he describes, he's talking again about love the believers have. And he describes those who don't love as murderers. And let's see why. Let's read verses 11 and 12. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because Abel's righteous life bothered him. By the bare fact that Abel was living righteously, it showed Cain his sin that he was doing. And it, it irritated him. So what did he do? He killed him. Removes the problem. Now Abel's no longer there to, to, show, to demonstrate uh, Cain's sin. And John is saying that unbelievers, it's the same thing. The thoughts are the same. If I'm living in sin and I have a believer here near me that is living righteously, it throws my sin into sharp relief. I can see everything that I'm doing and it bothers me, it irritates me. So I don't want that person around me. Now, I, might, I may not take it to the extreme that Cain did. I may not kill that person, but the thought is exactly the same. And so John is showing that there are two different types of people here. There are those who uh, know God, who love him, and there are those who don't. Now, at the beginning of chapter 4, John speaks about the doctrine that the Gnostics taught. And like I said, he's not going through point by point to show what they taught and why it's wrong. He just uses it as a distinction to show if they teach this, they're clearly wrong. So let's read verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Again, this is what we said. This is what the Gnostics taught. They did not believe that Jesus was God and had come to earth. So John uses that, and he says, if they teach this, they cannot be from God. Everything that they build on this is going to be wrong. So just forget it. Now, later in chapter 4, John begins to describe what true love really is. He gives a greater description of it. Before he had talked about love, he had, des he had described the differences that it will be in those who know God. But now he describes what true love is really like. We're not talking about the love that's on this earth. We're talking about the love that originated with God. It's what he's like. It's his nature. But how could we see this? We, we're on this earth. God is in heaven. We have no connection with him. We can't see it. God could tell us that he, that he loves, but we wouldn't understand. So God showed his love. And even deeper than that, he showed his love to us. He came down to this earth he came down when we hated him. We wanted nothing to do with him. And he wanted us to be with him. So he took our sin upon himself, paid for every single one of them. And why did he do this? So that we can be with him, enjoy a relationship with him as close as we've seen forever. This is true love. This is what love is really like. This is, this is what God is really like. And so if we know God, this will be part of our lives. 
It, it has to. It, it will just flow out of our lives. But if we don't show love, if that's not part of our lives, then that is a clear indication we don't know God. As John says in verse 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By contrast, the believer's life in verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. A believer's life, he will abide in love. It'll be part of him. It'll be a good description of his life. Why? Because he abides in God and God in him. And John is fitting everything together here. He's describing two different types of people. It's not like you'll pass one test, but you'll fail all the rest. Let's read verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Like I said, it all fits together. It's all a description of one type of person versus another. You'll either pass all of the tests or you'll fail all of the tests. And then he says at the end of verse 3, his commandments are not burdensome. Amen. It's a joy to, keep the, to follow the one, to keep, to keep the commandments of the one that we love so much. And then verse 13, John shows what should be the result of this letter here. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He wants them to see, again, first, the assurance that they may know that they have eternal life. Everything is settled forever. We could not possibly need every, in, anything. We will be with God for, for eternity. And then to continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Not to become confused with any of the teaching that's floating around. They have all of the teaching they need. They understand. They know God. They're complete. And then verses 18 through 20, he closes the letter. And it's kind of with a, it's neat. It's with a summary of the book. Three things that we know. We'll read through them one by one. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. True believers don't practice sin. Instead, they follow Jesus, they love him, and they keep his commandments. But by contrast, verse 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The rest of the world has no relationship with God, no knowledge of him, and then verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. True believers know God, they have eternal life, and they need nothing else forever. Now, John's second letter here is to a believing lady. And as we'll see in here, she's coming in contact with Gnosticism. And John warns her. But first, first of all, let's see how he begins. Verses 1 and 2. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all, the, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. First of all, he's convinced she's a believer. And as he says, because of the truth which abides in us. So he, he encourages her. 
But then we find out what, uh, why John wrote this letter. We get to the heart of it in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Obviously, as we said before, who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Clear mark of Gnosticism. And how does John describe them here? As an antichrist, working against Christ, working against God. This is very wrong. So, verse 9, he wants to give her the distinction, as he did in, verse, as he did in his first letter. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So again, John says that to deny, to deny that Jesus is God who came to earth makes the entire message untrue. Anything that's going to be built on that is wrong. He says that this kind of a person does not have God. You cannot be further from the truth. So what do we do in response? Verses 10 and 11. And think about, think about this in her life. She was in contact with these guys. This is what John says to do. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. If someone is teaching something apart from the truth, don't get involved with them in any way. I don't care, regardless of how high-sounding their teaching may be, you know that the core of their teaching is wrong. So everything else is going to be false. So what do you do? You have no fellowship with them whatsoever. You shun them. Leave them alone. All that they're trying to do is work against God. And John says, what you'll do, you'll share in their evil deeds. You're condoning their work by accepting them. So a warning. Now, third John, on the other hand, is an encouragement. This is to a believing man. His name is Gaius. And as far as we can tell, he's not in contact with Gnosticism. But still, there's a lot of parallels and a lot of contrasts with Second John. Let's read verses 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in, walk in truth. John is glad. Without his support, this man is doing what's right. He's being faithful to the Lord. He's strong in the Lord without being supported by someone else. In contrast to the lady in Second John, whom John had to write this letter to because without a stronger believer around her, she was uh, falling into problems. And this, as we see here, I have no greater joy. This is what John wants most. This is the thing that makes him the happiest. This is what he wants out of life. And let's look at what Gaius does, what his, what his life is like, verses 5 through 7. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers, who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. This man, Gaius, is showing real hospitality. When teachers are coming through, believers who have nowhere to stay, they show up, they're teaching the word, and they need someone to take care of them. So Gaius opens up his house. Whatever they need, it's his. He's going to take care of them. And he doesn't know when they're going to show up, but he wants to do everything he can to help them. And it's out of love, as we can see, as John says here. 
It's not grudgingly. He's doing this because he wants to serve the people of God. And so John follows it up, verse 8, with an encouragement, not a warning. We therefore ought to receive such, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. It's a promise that we will share in their work. That what God is, that the work that God is doing, we will share in it because we are helping them. It's interesting that both the lady in Second John and here Gaius in John's third letter were both bringing in teachers. And so they're both sharing in their work. But Gaius was bringing in the right teachers. He was bringing in those who were serving God. So the fact that he's going to share in their work is an incredible encouragement. Whereas for the lady in Second John, bringing in wrong teachers, this is a warning, a strong warning, that she is going to share in their work by bringing them in. Now we find out the situation of the church that Gaius is in, verses 9 through 11. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. This one man, Diotrephes, is causing a lot of problems in the church, real difficulties. He's trying to take over the leadership. He sees himself as the most important. He's, he's concerned with number one. And he's refusing direction from John. He's bad-mouthing John and others. He's putting believers out of the church. What a difficult situation to serve the Lord in. And it would be so easy to let this affect your life, to not do what you're supposed to because of this. But John exhorts him, regardless of the circumstances, he says, imitate what is good. To keep serving the Lord regardless of what is happening. So in the three letters here, we've seen three separate thoughts. In 1 John, we saw what it really means to be a Christian, to know Jesus. And if we know Jesus, the results will be obvious in our lives. And then 2 John, a strong warning to have no fellowship with false teachers at all. But then in 3 John, a breath of fresh air, a believer who's an example in difficult circumstances. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given it to us and shown us, Lord, that we can know you. We can be so close to you, Lord. You've given us an opportunity to be in a relationship with you, and we thank you so much. And we do pray, Lord, we, we thank you for also that uh, soon, we, Lord, we are expecting to be with you forever. And what a joy that will be for eternity. In your name, amen.